Teal Talk Radio, Season 7, Episode 7. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 7 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy hatton And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today, we're speaking with Lindsay Jones, President and CEO of the National Center on Learning Disabilities. Lindsay has been with the Center for over five years and previously served as Vice President, Chief Policy and Advocacy Officer. In that role, she designed and implemented legislative strategy in Washington, D.C., aimed at advancing government policies that support the success of individuals with learning and attention issues in school, at work, and in life. She also developed advocacy campaigns and worked closely with the Center's grassroots network of committed parents. The mission of NCLD is to improve the lives of the one in five children and adults nationwide with learning and attention issues by empowering parents and young adults transforming schools, and advocating for equal rights and opportunities. NCLD is working to create a society in which every individual possesses the academic, social, and emotional skills needed to succeed in school, at work, and in life. Welcome to the podcast, Lindsay. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So let's get our conversation started today. Can you share a personal story about what brought you to this work of advocating for individuals with learning and attention challenges? Sure. My family, my family brought me here. Um, my mom, my uncle, my aunt, they've spent their whole careers um, as allies and advocates for individuals with disabilities. And I grew up in their classrooms and their schools. Um, And it just really inspired me as I went through my own career to go to law school. After watching them advocate and fight for so many important civil rights laws for individuals with disabilities and seeing the incredible impact those laws had on individuals' daily lives and all of our lives, um, it just, it drew me in. So here I am. Thank goodness for people who are being drawn into this important topic that um, really serves a lot of our learners. As, as leaders, I think one of the things that we do is we try and challenge the assumptions in this, in this domain of education, especially we're in public education. And so let's look at this, this uh, sector of public education uh, called special education. What are some of the assumptions that you think we should be challenging as school leaders, as educational professionals? You know, I think special education, in my mind, is, and in my experience, um, coming from a family of trained special educators all working in public schools, um, what it is that is so incredible, it's the best of our teaching knowledge, right? It's our special educators know actually more about how to teach all students who learn, all students learn differently. They know how to do every type of customization and accommodation for those students. And I think Um, one of the things we need to do is rethink how we work with special educators in our schools and how our systems work with them so that we can really maximize their talents in many more ways. And I think the unchecked assumptions about individuals with disabilities, um, especially those with learning disabilities, because learning disabilities are brain-based, they're invisible. They don't appear, uh, they're not manifested on the physical body. And in most cases, unfortunately, what that leads to is when children are not achieving, our first assumption can be they're being lazy, they're not getting it, they're being obstinate, um, as opposed to a deeper look at 
why might this student be responding in this way? Do we need to have um, more inquiry about what they're processing and how they're um, engaging with the material and what issues they might be having in, in understanding in the ways that we're presenting? So that's interesting that you're, you know, you look at it from the perspective of our special education teachers being our you know, our strongest experts are really having additional knowledge and skills to meet the needs of our diverse learners. And, um, you know, I absolutely agree with that. And, and I'm also thinking about the challenges that our special education teachers, you know, have on their plate. So right, right now, we have our special education teachers who are doing a lot of progress monitoring and um, determining whether or not students are going to need additional services based on COVID from last spring and, you know, you know, additional paperwork for these for these teachers and so much of their work takes them away from direct service at times to learners. And I think people don't don't understand the reality of working in, in the special education field and some of the, um, you know, I think people make assumptions about that as well. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. I think the way the system is set up in schools, it it keep it, it does exactly what you just said. It keeps our teachers from the direct service and also it doesn't create opportunities for them to help their general education partners work with the diverse students in their classroom. And so I think if I was a school leader right now, I would be really looking at um, and if I had, you know, obviously we, we really support more resources for public education. There's, it, there's no doubt it's under-resourced in every single state in the nation. Um, but one of the things I think we'd really look at is how are you supporting your special education workforce? Does your special education teacher need to be the case manager, the secret, the sort of in, a, in an administrative position of filling out paperwork? Could that be handled in a different way to kind of relieve them of some of that burden? What can technology do there? They certainly need to know the content and material of the IEP or the 504 plan, but do they have to be the one constantly spending time monitoring that? There might be a better way to do that. Um, and then secondly, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, we've had huge push in policy to inclusion. So most of our special education students spend almost all day in front of a general education teacher. They might be in a co-taught classroom. They might have a push-in service here or there, but by and large, they're getting almost all of their content from a general education teacher who's never had a single class. Maybe they've had one class in every disability. We're putting too much burden on our general educators there as well. Our special educators should have more ability and time in the schedule to help those general educators customize and diversify for their uh, the students in their classroom. And what we know is when you can, when you're teaching, especially towards students with learning disabilities who learn and think differently, we know you're gonna help lots of diverse learners in your classroom who are coming in with trauma, poverty. They may not have disabilities, but they're having some impediments to learning. And we've got good science that demonstrates that the interventions that work for things like dyslexia and math also really help other students who are struggling. What's good for special ed is good for all students often. <laughs> Absolutely. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. So going As school leaders, it's really hard. I mean, I hear you saying give, give our teachers more time and you know, there's only so much time in the day and it's, it's a real challenge to support these teachers and, and, 
you know, I think we're worried about our special education teachers. We're worried about all of our teachers in the current current um, situation because it's becoming more and more difficult. We're fully online right now um, in our district. So our special education students aren't even coming into the buildings. And, you know, I, I think we're just, we're really not sure how to provide those additional supports without additional resources. Um, so that's a challenge that we're, we're thinking about now in, in the district. Yeah, COVID, I mean, there's no doubt, COVID is straining our system like we've never seen before. We already had a special education teacher shortage in every single state in our nation. Um, we've got an opportunity, I think, to make some real changes to the system going forward. And we are being forced right now to do it. I mean, I think schools are absolutely overburdened right now. Absolutely. But I do think it's a good opportunity to think about how can we change the schedule? Does the schedule have to be this way? In many districts, it's locked in for many reasons. Um, contracts, calendars, we really need to rethink those and look at some of the examples of how those places are changing. And then honestly, I think higher education and teacher preparation, while it's not going to solve a school leader's problem today in the classroom, it is going to solve your problem three years from now. If we can get those programs to change the statistics. Currently, we did a study two years ago of general educators across the nation. Only 17% of them felt at all prepared to teach students with learning disabilities. By and large, all teachers were going to Pinterest and teacher to teacher to find lesson information. Our institutes of higher education, our teacher colleges have to step up to the challenge and meet the current environment and start changing how they're preparing, who they're providing to you and to, our, to others so that we can be more flexible with those skill sets. Well, and, and that's a good point. And we, we're struggling to even find special education teachers. And, you know, not because people don't want to do the work. Um, the need is high. The expertise is more limited. And the challenges of that position are extensive. I would agree with that. I think it, it really is, you know, I think it's truly, it's not, you're not going to solve the problem other than systemically. I do think principals in schools because of what, if they want to make a decision, they have a lot of power over how they can lead and what they can emphasize and how they can move schedules and move different things around and bring in um, a, a real focus on this. But I, you know, there's, there's no doubt you're not going to solve, you're not going to solve this problem without focusing on the whole system soup to nuts. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what your thoughts are on um, sort of going back to the assumptions question, but also in the, the sort of COVID-19 pandemic uh, question too. How, how can we change our notion of what success is too? Is our, is our idea in education of success too narrow? And do we need to be thinking of it more, we, we talk about being more learner-centered. Do we need to, to be more learner-centered instead of forcing all kids into this sort of narrow idea of success is is does that sort of lead to um these assumptions that kids are lazy or they're they're just not competent or they need more additional support like what if we expanded that notion of success well i think there's two things that we could really do that would help i think one way one reason that um people make assumptions 
about students as being lazy as opposed to maybe looking more deeply into their how they're learning and examining their way the patterns that they're demonstrating in their work is because they don't have a lot of knowledge about what might be happening in the disability. We don't really train, we don't give most of those frontline educators the knowledge to, to ask the first question of, might this be something, you know, is the child acting out because they're, they don't want people to know they can't learn and they're feeling worried about that and they don't know what it is and they're diverting attention away. So there's one element to that. I absolutely think we need to, it, it, whether it's open to broader notions of success, I think we need, it's unquestioned that part of the other, I think part of the other assumption that happens with children with disabilities is that unfortunately, sometimes, and this is why I'm hesitating in answering your question a little bit, but <laughs> one of the other things is that people will often say, well, you have a disability. So that means you'll only ever get mm -hmm. to this level. And we should never, so your level of success is here. It's just lower than everyone else's. And that can be so incredibly damaging. First of all, it's not true based on the evidence. And second of all, we don't know what anyone's human potential is, right? And I think athletes are the best example of that. There's a million athletes out there who, if you looked at their simply at their talent, at those measures you're thinking of, what I, you could compare to a standardized test and saw that, and then they've exceeded that to incredible degrees for various reasons. That would apply to our learners as well. So I want to agree with what you're saying, because I think the, the, the measures of success don't apply well, actually, to the rest of someone's life. They don't apply to the, the career needs of our, our workforce. They don't apply to what you might be. But I always get a little hesitant because I don't want to imply that we're saying, well, there should be a higher measure for these students and a lower measure mm -hmm. for these. I think what you're, so I'm just being, which I think you're meaning, but I just want to make sure that's clear because of mm -hmm. misunderstanding. Yeah. So um, in our middle school, we have a small school within a school. So students who want to learn in a different way and what we say is a more learner-centered way where the, there's, um, they start with what the, what the learner's interests are, they back map to standards, et cetera. And some of our biggest success stories that we've heard have been from the special ed students, the students that went through a more traditional program and now that they've been in something that's more learner-centered with a different sort of definition of success, um, still learning standards, still meeting uh, content expectations, but in a different way, and and sort of a reshifting how we think about success in that. And those kids appear to be, from what we're hearing, blossoming and and sort of in a new environment. And and they're they're the ceiling on their disability has been raised. Like they can achieve even more than we thought that they could previously. Yeah, that's and that's absolutely what we're finding around the nation when people do move to learner centric. When they back map it, back map it to standards, what we see is individuals and human brains truly learn in different yes. ways. Mm -hmm. They just do, and we have you know we now have a bunch of um, amazing scientists at our top universities who are doing these fMRIs of the of the brain and really giving us a little bit of meatier information in some ways about how that brain is, how our brains are differently structured and how they actually do 
process information differently. And so I think that's a terrific thing that's happening and should happen in every school in the nation. Because I think what we'll never be able to measure is the impact the label has on the student and what it does to them and how they might stop trying and the shame that they feel and that what that does to them. We just we, we can't measure it in some ways. And yet we know it's there. We see it every day. And stories like the one you just told are so powerful because the, the power of human potential is unknown. And so when we cap it and when we don't allow it many ways to emerge, we lose so much of the society that we don't even know that we've lost. Right. And are That's those terrific. And are those assumptions sort of cloaking over the gifts that that child has that they don't even know they have because we haven't created the conditions for them to actually find out what that is too. So that idea of redefining success, like we just, we've had this in our head and it's hard for us to challenge that. So interesting conversation. Let's move it, uh, move the conversation to some of your work at uh, the NCLD. What are some of the, your biggest advocacy efforts that you're focused on at the moment? Why are those important? Yeah, we are. So we're focused on two that I'd feature right now. Although, let me say, we're always focused on trying to get increased funding and resources to public schools in our nation. And no more now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that just know we're always doing that. Um, But I put two other that I'll just lift up. One, which is really concerning to us as um, in terms of um, the K-12 environment and has happened this year and has been related to COVID. And that was when most of our nation's schools shut down the middle of March, we saw some efforts in Congress that want that tried to push um, legislation that would waive uh, the provisions within IDEA for the whole for a whole year. As an organization, we fought back against that very, very strongly. Um, And we will continue to fight that because we view that as a civil rights law. We understand everyone needs grace right now, but the thought of taking away the rights um, is something we can't stand for. What we have done also, though, at the same time, is work with other organizations now close to over 40 national organizations to form a website called educatingalllearners.org, where we are trying to put forward, and we started immediately when this began, ideas and first-person stories from educators of how they were managing and teaching special education students during COVID. Because before this, there just wasn't any good evidence about how to do that necessarily. So this has been an incredible opportunity there. So we're still concerned about them waiving IDEA, and it's a huge push for us. The second thing is for our post-secondary students, and that is something called a piece of legislation, federal legislation called the RISE Act. And this is, you know, years ago in the 2004 reauthorization of IDEA, schools and parents came together and agreed that if your child had had an IEP for several years, you could waive an evaluation. You could consent to waive a reevaluation in the high school. So many families did that, continued and end schools. And that was good. It was eliminating paperwork at that point. Um, and it was meant to help. The problem is when those students go to college, the college demands that they provide a, a re- very recent evaluation. I know that you guys know, your listeners know, to get a private evaluation is extremely expensive. It can be three to five to $10,000. That's not money that 
lots of people have, especially when they're facing college and paying for the costs that will be incurred there. Also, um, you've already met a federal definition of disability. You've had an IEP for your whole career. So it should be that you're accepted as a person with a disability and you can have a conversation with your college about how they might accommodate that. So the RISE Act would say, if you've had an IEP or a 504, then the college doesn't accept the IEP or 504. They simply recognize you as a person with a disability. You don't have to pay for a private evaluation. And then you have a conversation with them about how they can accommodate your needs in the college environment. Those are our two biggest pushes right now. So that's really interesting. Both Randy and I teach at the college level and um, as adjuncts, we'll get an email that says this this learner in your class, whether it, this adult learner, you know, maybe it's an undergrad at, you know, 18, 19, 20, um, or, or an adult learner in a master's program, you know, we'll, we'll get an email that says this, this learner has a learning difference, but we don't, you know, like here in public ed, you get the IEP, you get the SDIs, you sort of know exactly what you need to do. And at, at the higher ed level, you know, that's very different. So I'm connecting to what you're saying and thinking about yeah. how that could be, um, you know, really meaningful and and probably more meaningful for um, professors and instructors at the higher ed level who aren't connected to public ed. Like as a public ed person, I see that and say, okay, you know, I need to provide accommodations. What are they? I need to ask the person to talk about it. But someone who's outside of the field of public education and hasn't, hasn't, grown and learned about IEPs and, and accommodations, um, I could see how that could be really beneficial to, to support learners in that environment. Interesting. Yeah. I think this is, you know, honestly, for many, many years, kids with disabilities weren't going to college. So colleges mm -hmm. didn't have to be set up for them. But on, we passed IDEA 40 plus years ago. You have generations of students who've gone through that. And now many, many more go to college. Still not enough but many more. And so you're seeing colleges, this issue I think come up, especially within the last couple of years. And you're so right. I think most professors or many professors don't, they haven't been exposed to this. They don't, they wouldn't know what an accommodation would be. I wouldn't expect them to in some right. way. I'd expect their college to help them, but you know, understand. But I think it's a, so it's a really interesting area and it's definitely something we wanna push into as we go forward to support our population. So much to talk about in this topic, Lindsay. Maybe we can invite you back again and talk a little bit more about um, what Randy mentioned in the preview about uh, one in five children and adults um, having these learning and attention issues. But for now, let's wrap it up with some of our quick lightning response uh, questions. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> so who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about advocating for those um, young and adult learners with learning and attention issues? People should connect with Lederic Horn. He is an amazing um, spoken word artist, person with learning and attention issues, speaker, writer, and just real expert and inspirational person in this area. Second question, if you were recommending one book to our listeners, what might that book be? I would recommend Disability Visibility by Alice Wong. It is awesome. It is a collection of first-person stories um, about people with disabilities, by people with disabilities. And it's just incredible. It's moving, inspiring, and eye-opening. 
All right, I've never heard of that one. Great. And finally, what online site resource or person do you learn from regularly? I learn from Judy Human, who also wrote another great book just came out called The Human Perspective. She um, she is an incredible disability advocate. She I follow her on Facebook. That's actually where I like to engage with Judy. Um, but she uh, she's held several. Um, offices in government. She was most instrumental. There's a drunk history about her, if you've ever seen that show on the History Channel, and about um, she was one of the activists in the 70s who shut down uh, federal buildings in San Francisco to get the 504 regulations uh, to be uh, promulgated. And she's just, she's great. She's smart and funny, and I learn a lot from her every day. All right. So let's wrap up uh, the conversation. What are you working on that you'd like to share with our audience at this time? You know what? We're working on October, which is Learning Disabilities Awareness Month. And so we're speaking with lots of our young adults and our parents and others and helping them share their stories so that we can uh, lift up their voices all through the month of October. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, we have enjoyed this conversation and we look forward to continuing it with you, Lindsay. For our listeners to learn more about Lindsay's work, you can check out some of the resources in the show notes. Um, we link to the site and the experts that Lindsay mentioned. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking conversation and reflection. This episode's question after today's conversation, how, you, how can you better support those in your learning environment with learning and attention issues? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season seven, episode seven. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Lindsay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.